Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, this is Duran. Welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and Diara, as usual, talking about the underreported stories in the news. And then I sit down with Quentin and Stephanie Brown-James of the Collective Pack, talking about their incredible work, which is even more dope than you know. And then I have a quick check-in with Antoine Phillips, who's running to be a city director for Little Rock, Arkansas. It's sort of like the city council. And I've known him ever since Bowden. So it is amazing to hear his journey, to see what's going on, and to support his race for city director in Little Rock. And you know what, y'all? I'm fired up and ready to go. Fired up and ready to go. Election day is coming. Get your plans together. Get your friends together. We got a lot of stuff to do. Y'all stay fired up and ready to go. Fired up and ready to go. Welcome to another riveting episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Kaya Henderson, and you can reach me at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So we are actually just a week out from the election. And let me just tell you that this thing is making my hair stand on end as probably everybody else in the country. What are you all thinking at this point? Where are we a week out? Nervous. I don't, I don't know what else to say. This is... Um... You know, you look at the polling, you look at the numbers, it like gives you this false sense of comfort. You look at the early voting returns and like every day I'm going to the uh, election project, I'm looking up their numbers and like the early vote, like today in Texas, 80% of 2016's total vote uh, has voted now early already. It's interesting in some places you can see like the breakdown by party and it's like Democrats who have voted more than Republicans in general in key states. It's like all that looks good, but like at the end of the day, a whole lot of votes still haven't been cast. A whole lot of stuff that we still don't know is going to happen might happen. And we still have to deal with this situation in the Supreme Court. So like the win is like we we need to get Trump out of office and also like we need to win the Senate, which is like a higher bar. And then like we need to make sure that there are enough Democratic senators. So like... Even if we have a majority, like if, you know, one or two Democratic senators isn't down with removing the filibuster or packing the courts, we still have votes. So like the the bar is just so high that like we have no margin for error. Like we have to win, certainly have to defeat Trump. And we have to do like a bunch of other things to even make like what people deserve possible in the next four years. So I am um, nervous about that, but also cautiously optimistic about just the sheer number of people who've turned out and like the number of young people who've turned out, um, the number of black people who've turned out despite all of these restrictions and voter suppression measures. So shout out to everybody voting in a pandemic despite all of the risks and the barriers, making your voice heard, voting by mail in unprecedented numbers, voting in person in unprecedented numbers, just generally turning out in the way that we need to. So 
cautiously optimistic. This is the first election where I feel like way more people understand early voting. They understand mailing in the ballot. Like, I think that there was an uphill battle. I remember voting early in Baltimore the last election, and it was sort of like, you know, people came and it was a thing, but it wasn't like uh, you. this is a cool thing to do or you must like. But this election, I see people being like, okay, we'll stand in the line. We know the line shouldn't last four hours, but we'll be here and we'll fight that fight later. Like, that culturally, I actually see that, and I think that that will stick with people. I think that that will become habit. I also think that this election, in hindsight, will build momentum for Election Day being a holiday. I think that more and more people who might not have sort of cared before will be like, okay, this just is like simple. It should be a holiday. I am more and more nervous about, you know, the last episode we had Terrence on to talk about a disinformation to black men. And I'm telling you, these last two weeks, I've been in conversations with people. Like, I was in an Uber last night where one of my friends was like, isn't it true that Trump changed it so that felons can vote? And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, didn't Trump change the law so like people who are incarcerated now and people who are formerly incarcerated so they can vote? Trump did that, right? And I was like, absolutely not. Like, no, <laughs> Trump did not do that. Like, if anything, he's like doing the opposite. He doesn't want people to vote. It's been interesting that in my friend group, I've actually been coming up against these, like, but didn't the first step back, like, sort of end incarceration? You're like, absolutely not. Like, that makes me nervous. Like, I am nervous about that. And like Sam said, we need to win the presidency, but we also need to win the Senate. And we can't win the Senate without black men. So I hope that in this final stretch that the left is putting together memes and videos and all this stuff to like target black men so that they get the message because Trump has been playing a much longer game with the misinfo and then disinfo. And that has me a little nervous. On the bright side, you know, I am cautiously optimistic, but I was cautiously optimistic with Hillary. So please vote y'all. Take your cousins, make it a holiday. If you got to fight with somebody and like, you know, they get their little sticker for the day and y'all just disagree, but you get the vote in, like, let that be it because we we need these wins. I am inspired by how people are showing up to vote. I mean, early voting opened yesterday in New York, and everybody that I talked to from my family and friends were getting online yesterday. Some people waited seven and a half hours to vote. I think the level of commitment is unprecedented. I think people do really understand um, what's at stake here. And like you, I'm cautiously optimistic, but that cautious is heavier than the optimistic because I, I remember this feeling four years ago and we can't have that again. I mean, at the end of the day, right, you're, you call it misinformation or disinformation. I'm just going to call it what it is, which are lies. And the lies are abundant right now, right? From what your friends have heard and believed to what people are saying. I have people who are saying, oh yeah, no, 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 we can't vote for Trump. We can't have another four years of this. But the ballot box is confidential and we have no idea what people are going to do when they walk inside and have a lever to pull. And so a showing up, a showing out. I mean, these early numbers are so flipping inspiring. And if we can keep this momentum going, then we have a chance at winning. This week, I chose to focus on an article from the Texas Tribune. The title of the article is called Alarming Failure Rates Among Texas Students, Fuel Calls to Get Them Back into Classrooms. And it's really a great article by a woman named Aliyah Swabi, uh, who really dissects, I think, 
what is actually happening with virtual learning on the ground in Texas. And what she reports is that Texas superintendents are now realizing that virtual instruction is not working for thousands of students across the state. There are 5.5 million public school students in Texas. Three million of them are learning from home. And initial report cards from the first quarter show that more students this year than last year are failing at least one class. More students are skipping days and weeks of virtual school. And many, many students are falling behind on reading. And what happened was, as many people know, this spring was incredibly difficult for not just Texas schools, but schools across the board as they tried to implement distance learning. In fact, between teachers union contracts that only mandated a couple of hours of instruction and trying to get devices and things to kids and connectivity, the spring was pretty much a dumpster fire for education. And so many districts mandated that school would be back to normal this fall, even though it would be virtual. They would run the full day of programming, seven or eight classes, that schools would dial up the intensity of academic rigor and things would just get back to normal. And what has happened is there are an alarming number of kids who are failing, not just failing one class, but failing multiple classes. In fact, in Austin Independent school district, 11,700 kids are failing at least one class, which is up 70% from where they were last year. What's holding kids back? Connectivity issues, lack of devices, other tech issues, for sure. But for many of these kids, they just are not connecting to this virtual learning space. Um, They aren't finding the supportive classroom environment that they need. They aren't finding the academic support that they need. And for a lot of kids, it literally is just not working. What's most interesting, I think, is about how adults are responding to this. So if kids are not learning, what do we do? Well, on the one hand, this is strengthening the urgency of calls to get students back in classrooms as soon as possible. And so there is a huge appetite for reopening school in person to bring kids in um, because in some places, in fact, um, you find much lower failure rates for kids who are attending in-person versus virtually. In one district where 78% of the kids are attending school in person, only 8% of the kids attending in person are failing, but 25% of the kids who are attending virtually are failing. Uh, But what we see happening with the adults is all kinds of shenanigans. So we see administrators asking teachers to grant exceptions to kids who are failing or to quote unquote, extend grace to kids who are failing. Um, We see a number of school districts that are backpedaling on the academic rigor that they called for They're telling their teachers to do whatever it takes to make sure kids pass. In one particular district, a principal asked teachers to gift the students with a 70 if they were failing. And that has a direct correlation to a Texas policy called no pass, no play, which effectively says if you don't earn a 70 in your classes, then you can't play sports. And so teachers are being 
asked to gift children uh, a 70 passing score so that they can continue to play sports. In some cases, they're actually requiring failing students to come into school in person so they can begin to deal with the learning gaps. I chose this article because I think it is illustrative of what's happening all across the country. This is not just in Texas. This is happening everywhere. There are many, many, many children who are not finding success in virtual learning. Um, There are many, many administrators and districts who haven't figured out how to deal with that. And so you're going to see lots of shortcuts being taken. And at the end of the day, the people who are shortchanged by the shortcuts are our young people who need it most, our poorest and our most colorful young people. Um, These districts are getting hit with decreasing enrollment. Um, As I pointed out in my piece last week, which has tremendous budgetary implications, and the Texas Education Agency is reinstating sanctions for low test scores this year. Where they do that at? Why would you take money away from schools that are struggling to engage kids, to teach kids, and you're going to institute sanctions if their test scores don't go up this year? At the end of the day, for me, this is a little bit about common sense and how we don't always apply it in situations like this. When you have 70% more kids failing, um, a, a state education agency should not move forward with sanctions for low test scores. We need to figure out how to get these kids learning, whether it's in person or virtual. We need to shift resources. We need to grab some political spine around here and do what we need to do for our young people. So this article was fascinating, Kaya. And, you know, looking at this uh, in the context of sort of the news about rising COVID rates, like all across the country, except in a few places, um, it just just illustrates the difficulty of the situation where there is more and more and more pressure now uh, for kids to come back to in-person learning because the inequities in terms of access to remote learning, in terms of the ability to have the educational supports to engage in that learning remotely, Um, that those inequities continue to exacerbate as more time goes on. Um, And, you know, rich kids, privileged kids have access to all of these academic supports. um, And low-income kids, marginalized kids have none of that. Um, So there's more and more pressure for kids to come in to school and learn in person. But I have to imagine, you know, as a superintendent, as a principal, looking at these numbers all across the country continuing to go up, not only in the U.S., but like abroad too. It looks like there's another wave coming and like, how do you plan around that? How do you plan for moving to in-person learning in the context where that in-person learning is predictably going to be more risky moving forward um, if the current trends hold? So, so I think all of that is huge challenge for educators. What are the steps that some districts might be taking to close those gaps in access and to get every kid um, access to a remote learning device, um, to get every kid access to the internet, to get every kid access to the emotional supports and the educational supports that they need at this time? Now, I'm just curious now, you know, hearing about this, you know, what are some strategies that have been effective in that space? Have they actually worked? Or is this just, you know, ultimately, this there's not a technological solution for you know, the inequities and the stress that, that folks are going through right now. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, who might be really solving this and, and how they're doing it so that we can scale that to other places. One of the things that was really interesting to me 
was this question of how do you quantify the learning loss? So the nonprofit testing organization, NWEA, they predicted that students started this school year having lost roughly a third a year in reading and half a year in math. Then Credo, an education research organization, they projected that the average student lost 136 to 232 days of learning in math, depending on their state. And McKinsey, the consulting firm, predicts that by the fall of 2021, students will have lost three months to a year of learning, depending on the quality of their remote education. And just a reminder for these places where kids are losing 200 days, an average school year is only 180 days. It's sort of wild. And, you know, in reading about this, it was interesting because some people, you know, were like standardized testing doesn't tell the whole story. And it's like, I get it. We should we should have more rigorous ways to talk about how kids learn. And either you can add or you can't. Right. Like either either kids like understand that multiplication is repeated addition or they don't. Right. Mm -hmm. And some of this stuff I think about, there are some kids that I know, some family members who they got out of third grade, like one one kid got out of third grade right when they were supposed to like start to really learn that multiplication is repeated addition, which it is, F FYI. <laughs> and, um, and they just didn't, like the lesson stopped, like school stopped. So now their parent is trying to teach like the relationship between skip counting, like three, six, nine, and like multiplication. And like luckily the parent is a teacher and sort of can like muscle through this, but... I'm like, how many people would be able to do this? And I do think the learning loss will be significant. I think that like anybody who's ever taught can tell you that remediation is hard in general. And this much content people missing, like history, like you you miss like whole things, you know? Like, Centuries, whole, eras. Right. That's like, you know, I think about math, it's like whole skills. And because the pandemic came on so quick, nobody was tracking like which skills we stopped, you know, like that whole conversation about like what skills stopped and where we picked up. And I'm close to another principal who they started off virtually and now they are transitioning to in-person. The classes will shift. Kids will be regrouped. This is serious. So I do want us to start. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll start getting creative about what remediation looks like and seriously commit to. And if any listener has like a good example of this happening across the country, like we will have to figure out how to equip parents better. I don't know how we'll get out of this without parents being legitimately equipped to help. And I see this rise in homeschooling and I'm like, I don't even know if that's a good thing. Like I don't, you know, just a, a ton of people being schooled at home with parents who don't know the content is not necessarily a win. So I want us to add some texture to these conversations because this could be like a lost set of kids skill-wise for a while. And like, that's not fair. I think your point about parents having to be equipped is really an interesting one because I mean, we're at a point where most parents are just, uh, even the best intentioned parents are fed up and tired of, of trying to pull off this distance learning support thing for their young people. Most schools and school districts have not given parents the tools and resources that could help them be successful, yet and still parents have a front row seat about what is and what is not going on in schools, and parents are pissed off about what they're seeing and parents are at a different level of demand, which I think in the long term is going to be good for us. It's going to force schools and school districts to deliver something very different. But in the short term, uh, like you, DeRay, I'm worried that we are losing a, an entire generation of kids as a result of just what has gone on over the last year. So my news is about live PD. 
which is a show like Cops uh, that for quite some time has taken a camera crew along with police officers in departments across the country to film arrests, use of force, other policing tactics that are often violent, often disproportionately against black people. And a new report just came out in The Statesman, uh, which actually looked at the impact uh, that live PD may have had in Williamson County in Texas, which is near Austin. So specifically, this report found that uh, use of force in Williamson County Sheriff's Department increased uh, from a 43 use of force incidents in 2017, the year before uh, Live PD began working with Williamson County, to uh, 82 incidents the year after that in 2019, uh, almost doubled during that time period. A deeper analysis of the data also found that during the weeks that Live PD was filming, police were more likely to use force than the weeks that Live PD was not filming. Um, and that there were many cases in which Live PD, while the cameras were on, police continued to engage in excessive force, police brutality against a whole host of folks, including uh, Javier Ambler, who was killed by police while Live PD was filming in 2019. I've had to like read up on what's going on with Live PD. They recently announced uh, after the murder of George Floyd that they would be suspending uh, Live PD programming, but the sort of legacy of Live PD continues on in many cases um, in Williamson County, where the sheriff now has been indicted uh, last month uh, with felony evidence tampering for uh, seeking to prevent the disclosure of Live PD footage of their officers using excessive force. So again, this is a situation where a sheriff has been charged with a felony um, for trying to prevent Live PD footage from coming out. And it's more evidence that programs like Live PD contribute to a culture of police violence, particularly against black people. Black people were overrepresented in terms of who uh, was impacted by police use of force during that period. And it's another reminder that filming the police is not an antidote to police violence. That the fact that there are cameras on, the fact that a camera crew is live broadcasting the footage to the world did not prevent the officers from killing Javier Ambler uh, by tasing him repeatedly until he died, uh, did not prevent the police from using force at even higher levels than they had been using it before Live PD came into Williamson County. And so I wanted to leave you all with that because I think, you know, as we talk about video evidence and body cameras, this is an important part of the conversation because it's clear that the presence of video footage here didn't prevent anything from happening. If anything, uh, it actually encouraged officers to be even more violent uh, for the cameras. So what's interesting, I encourage everybody to listen to the podcast Running From Cops. It is an excellent podcast. It details all of the things with cops. I learned so much. Sam can tell you, I listened to it, called him, harassed him. Like, you must listen to it. I got a meeting with the people who produced it because I was like, we got to do something about cops. Like, it was incredible to just learn. So, like, I won't steal the thunder of their pie, but running from cops, it's about cops and it's about IPD. Uh, but as Sam noted, cops did get canceled and it is actually back in production. They put out a press release on September 30th with the Spokane County Sheriff's Office, they announced that two cops film crews have been riding around since September and that filming will continue through the first week of November. So they clearly just canceled it as like a appeasement during the protests and they are back in action. It's aired since 1989 and has been going strong for 25 seasons and Live PD is not actually back in production yet. 
But Dan Abrams, who is the host of Live PD, he tweeted out in June, just so you know, it's coming back. And then he's actually tweeted even more recently, like, we'll cover this when it comes back. Like, he is clear that he thinks Live PD is actually coming back in action. And it is interesting because Live PD really went out of its way to make the police officers like heroes. They go on tour. They have fans. There's a whole culture of celebrating policing. And Sam just told you there's actually an underbelly of that. And if you listen to their podcast, Running From Cops, which I'm a big fan of, uh, you'll actually hear more. But it's interesting. And you think about the symbolic wins that people got during the protests in June that like seem like big things. And, you know, the police are like, we'll wait you out. And, you know, nobody's writing about this. And Sam, if you hadn't brought this news, I would have never realize that cops is back in production that live pd is probably gonna be back soon uh, and this is how the game is played so we have to stay vigilant i thought this was a fascinating article because this is the back to the common sense idea one would think that if you know you're being filmed you would actually follow the rules and do what was right but in fact the article pointed out that there was a culture of violence there was insufficient training and in fact that The police wanted to make good TV, and so that accounts for the increases in police brutality while they were filming. I think the wildest thing about this article is is that um, deputies were almost never disciplined for using force. In fact, they were rewarded for using good force with gift cards, and After one particularly egregious event uh, where a deputy was asked to resign, he was surprised that he was asked to resign. He thought he was being called in to get a gift card for having roughed people up. And so I think the media has a clear responsibility when we see data like this to ask itself how it's contributing and to be differently responsible than just going after the ratings because this is totally out of control. So my news is something that I I truly didn't know about before this week. I didn't know about this issue of not having an ID upon release from jail or prison. I think I'd heard about it before, but I I just hadn't read anything about it. I didn't know what solutions look like. So my article is about New York City and about the New York City Department of Corrections does not keep data on how many people leave city jails without an ID each year. But more importantly, the Department of Corrections has a history of actually not returning people's IDs to them that they have seized upon arrest. So you get arrested, they take all your stuff, supposed to get it back when you get released, uh, and they have a pattern of actually just not giving it back. And the challenge with that is that when you get out of incarceration and you need an ID to do pretty much anything, you'll need an ID to get back on Medicaid, to get government benefits, to apply for an apartment, to apply for a job. Like you actually need some form of ID. And this actually is just another burden that happens where the city could help people, but the city chooses to have a process that doesn't. I think the wildest thing that I learned from this in New York City, there's an ID called IDNYC, which is like a, it's not a driver's license, it's a it's an ID. What's sort of wild is that state prisons print ID cards that can be used as proof of identity so that people can apply for the IDNYC, like the New York City version. City jails print the ID cards as well, but for whatever reason, the city of New York does not take the paperwork from city jails as proof of identity. That makes no sense. It seems like people are just going out of their way 
to screw over people who've been incarcerated. Now, if you don't know who the people are who you've locked up, then I mean, if that's not the case for letting them out, then I don't know what is. If you don't have faith in your own paperwork about who is incarcerated, faith enough to give them an ID when they get out, that seems wild. So I hope that there's a legislator or somebody who champions this. Alaska, Florida, Illinois, and Mississippi all require that every state resident leaving state prisons be discharged with an official state ID. Minnesota, Tennessee, Virginia, and Idaho have DMV machines within prisons to help people acquire official state IDs. And there was a pilot program on Rikers established in 2016 about IDNYC, but it was shut down just after a month. And, you know, they said it was some logistical issues about a confidential Wi-Fi and and all this other stuff, uh, but they haven't figured it out. And again, these are like the subtle ways that people are just screwed over that go invisible to a lot of people who are looking at systemic work. So I didn't really know about this either. You know, I had, I knew that that folks weren't being provided uh, affirmatively with IDs that they didn't have before, but I hadn't quite considered that like people had entered the criminal justice system with an ID and the police just wouldn't give it back or lost it, quote unquote, or otherwise just like they refused to actually provide uh, the ID that the person had had previously. And that is, I mean, essentially they're stealing people's IDs is what that means and taking away their ability to reintegrate into society after uh, being released from jail. My head immediately went to, you know, obviously we're in an election season and uh, in many states, if you don't have an ID, you can't vote. And we know on any given day, there are between 600 and 700,000 people in jails across the country, many of whom are in states that require voter ID. And you can imagine it's been hard enough to sort of push sheriff's offices and uh, county departments of corrections to actually begin uh, making sure that folks who are incarcerated in jail have access to the franchise, are able to vote, are able to request a ballot. And then you can imagine, you know, that rarely happens at all. Um, And then when folks are released, you know, the least that they could do is make sure that folks have the ID that they started with when they got into the system. And they're literally disenfranchising people, not only from the vote in those states, but from a whole host of things that you mentioned, DeRay, that are necessary to get back on your feet. So it's wild. I hadn't really fully considered what's going on. It's good to hear that places, even places like Florida and Mississippi, apparently are doing things a little bit better um, than the norm, which is surprising. And I hope that more places uh, will consider this a requirement that folks be provided with IDs uh, at the time that they're released. This rings of an absolute failure in leadership to me. The fact that it is being done well in other places, says New York City can do this well, but chooses not to do it. And I think that that's reprehensible. On the one hand, I feel like somebody should sue the city of New York for losing people's things, right? If you can keep a clear chain of evidence against me and safeguard all of the things that lead to me getting convicted, you can keep my ID somewhere safe and give it to me when I leave. And so I think there should be a class action suit where until the city gets sued and does something differently that, you know, I I mean, I think that's a potential way to get things moving. And then on the other hand, I I just think that, you know, if people are serious, there were a number of advocacy organizations mentioned in the article that are, have reached out to the mayor to ask for a meeting to move this. And this is, you know, having worked in a large bureaucracy, 
as I read the article, this agency says, no, it's the other agency. The other agency says, no, it's that agency. It's Wi-Fi. It's this, it's that, it's the other. At the end of the day, some regular old human just has to stand up and say, you know what? This is jacked up and we should do better. Here's what we're going to do. That's leadership. That's what leadership takes folks. And, and far too many times the bureaucrats just keep bureaucrating instead of standing up and doing what the mess is right. And so this is a time for somebody to do something that's right. This is simple. This is simple. My news this week is from the New York Times, and it's actually being pretty widely reported, but I thought it's still important to bring it to the pod. So we've seen early vote lines, long lines across the country, um, folks standing for hours and hours. So I think what surprised me about this particular article is that this is happening in New York City. So Tens of thousands of New Yorkers flooded polling places and waited in lines for hours to cast their vote on Saturday, which was New York's first day of early vote. The New York Times reported that many of these folks turned out because of the concerns that their ballots might not be counted. Late last month, the city board of elections came under fire as many as 100,000 voters in Brooklyn received absentee ballots with the wrong names and addresses. So kind of the, the thinking is, is a lot of the flooding of the polling places and people actually getting out to vote in person is because their absentee ballots being wrong. So this is the first presidential election during which New Yorkers are allowed to cast ballots early. The state legislature approved early voting just in 2019 after Democrats took control of the New York legislature, making New York one of the last states to adopt it, which is wild if you think about New York as liberal as it is, respectively, um, being one of the last states in the country to adopt early voting. So Sarah Steiner, a New York election attorney who has represented candidates seeking public office, said on Saturday that it was not unusual to hear reports of long lines and other problems during the first day of early voting. She said, there's always a couple of glitches. This is an event for a lot of people, and it's wonderful to see the sign of civic engagement. It's also Ms. Steiner's belief that early voting lines tend to decrease after the first day, so voters should expect shorter waits as early voting continues. So folks, by the time you'll be hearing this, this election will be six days away. We are in the last full week of campaigning. Um, And as we know, early voting has been in full swing across the country. And as of last Sunday, almost 60 million Americans have casted a vote in this presidential election. This is obviously record-breaking turnout. Democrats hold an advantage in the early voting returns thus far. This is all according to the U.S. Election Project. So in terms of early votes, we're at 60,268,395. So of that, 40 million-ish are mail ballots, 20 million-ish are in-person votes. And so how that's showing up in terms of breakdown in party is Democrats are at about 13 million-ish and Republicans are at 7 million-ish. So yes, that is good. And as we know, more than one third of votes already returned come from the three most popular and important states, California, Texas, and Florida. Now, I don't want us to get too excited. And as we know from 2016, we have to press until the very end um, to get out the vote. And especially when we think about the premise that the hike in the dim turnout is potentially due to a collective belief in the facts and fears around coronavirus. And we know that this philosophy doesn't necessarily hold the same weight on the other side. So Republicans will come out on Election Day in huge numbers, and some say will face less lines since so many Dems have voted early or by mail. What's going to happen is that there's going to be a ton of turnout on the Republican side, and those are going to be in-person votes, right? So just remember that right now Dems are leading in mail-in ballots, but those are 40 million-some-odd ballots that need to be counted. 
The results of those are going to come much later. So all that to say that Trump may lead us on election night in terms of electoral college and popular vote because of all the in-person voting on the Republican side. But I think with all of that, that's why it's really, really, really important for us to get the vote out until election day. So keep pushing, keep pushing in your communities for folks to vote early and on election day. Y'all be having me outraged at these things that I don't know about that. Maybe it's good that I didn't know about them before because I was living a decent life and now I'm just angry all the time. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart. Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. For four years, Quentin Stephanie Brown James started the Collective Pack. Since then, they've raised money for campaigns across the country and trained more than a thousand black progressive candidates to run for office. Here's the discussion where I learned all about everything they've accomplished and where the pack goes from here. Let's go. Stephanie and Quentin, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having thanks for us, having Ray. Yeah. Cool. So I remember when you started the Collective Pack. I remember the announcement and, you know, we're coming to the final days of this fateful election. Can you talk to us yes. about what is the Collective Pack, why you started it, and like, what's the work? Yeah. So we launched the Collective Pack, uh, Stephanie and I, back in 2016 um, because we were frustrated with what we were seeing happening around the country you know, go back to what was happening in Ferguson um, with, with the Michael Brown situation, where we saw this majority of Black city um, and not a single African-American on city council, not a history of having Black mayors. The, the DA had been in office for decades and years. And so for us, it was like, how do we um, use our skills, our networks to raise money, recruit, train, support Black candidates to get in positions of power uh, to address the changes that our communities so um, in, in, in need for. Uh, and so that was kind of the impetus of it. And then and just like understanding that there wasn't um, a group supporting Black candidates specifically on the local, state, and federal level. Um, and so that was kind of my story. What, what about you, Steph? Like, what yeah, do you think? no, same thing. And, you know, one of the challenges we have in this country is we don't have equity and a representation of who's in political office. And in order to change the laws, we must change the lawmakers. We must have folks who are in office that both reflect and respect our communities. Um, and so, you know, we work really hard to make sure that we're supporting progressive Black candidates that are running, that we're helping them to be trained. Uh, soon after launching the collective pack, we realized, oh, we need to have a training mechanism. And so we started the Black Campaign School. Uh, we're partnering with Jessica Bird at Three Point Strategies. Um, we've thus far trained over a thousand Black folks who are either running for office or interested. And so, you know, now I would say the 2020 version of the collective has expanded to now uh, we have four separate organizations in addition to the PAC. We have a super PAC, we have a foundation, and we have a, a nonprofit organization. So we're just trying to cover all bases as we work to build Black political power. What have you learned uh, since you began, I can only imagine like what you thought coming into it and then all the lessons you learned. And maybe before you answer that, there are going to be a lot of people who are listening who have no clue what a PAC is. So how would yeah. you like, what is a PAC? My aunt wants to know what a PAC is. How do you talk about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, so a PAC stands for Political Action Committee. There are local PACs, state PACs and federal PACs. Uh, we run a federal PAC, meaning it is uh, kind of regulated by the Federal Elections Commission. Um, But PACs kind of basically allow you to raise money uh, to support candidates who you believe in. Right. So uh, we support black progressive candidates. But, you know, the NRA, for instance, support candidates who believe in, you know, giving everyone a gun and and not having any restrictions on our gun usage in this country. PACs can be organized around interests uh, or around identity. Uh, You have Emily's List, for instance, that supports pro-choice women. Um, and so that's kind of what, what PACs do. They uh, bundle money from lots of different people to support candidates or valid initiatives or issues 
in, in the kind of political arena uh, use that money to have somewhat of an outweighed influence, um, either in helping a candidate or opposing a candidate. There are also super PACs, uh, which you know those are started back in 2010 after the Supreme Court uh, said that money is now equal to free speech. And so super PACs, they actually don't have any limits uh, in what they can raise or spend on behalf of candidates or opposing those candidates. Um, but the one difference is federal PACs can actually work directly with those candidates and their campaigns. Uh, super PACs can't communicate or coordinate at all with those candidates. And just on the point of what we've learned, I mean, I think we've definitely learned how crucial this work is. In 2018, we saw a record number of Black candidates run for Congress. You know, there, there used to be this, and, and it still kind of is, this perception that if you are a Black candidate, you can only win in Black neighborhoods and Black counties. And what we've seen with Lauren Underwood, for example, from Illinois, who ran in a majority rural white area of Illinois, you look at uh, Lucy McBath in Georgia, who actually represents the seat that Newt Gingrich used to hold, we're, we've been able to see that Black candidates can win everywhere. And so we've been really working hard to make sure that everyday folks understand um, how important it is to be a voter, to be able to then select the representatives that we need to put in office to best represent our communities. Yeah, and, and I wanna add one more thing to that. We kind of knew this, but I think it's important to show people we don't have a like challenge of talent in our community. Mm -hmm. Like black candidates who step up and run um, are some of the most widely popular candidates, period, right? We look at um, 2018 with Stacey Abrams. You know, Stacey was the most Googled politician in the world in 2018. Uh, Jamie Harrison running for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina raised more money in the third quarter than any other Senate candidate in history, right? And so we see these examples of black candidates breaking so many of these glass ceilings in terms of dollars raised uh, or kind of folks engaging with their campaigns. And our job really is to show other candidates, we need you to step up, right? We need black folks to step up and run for school board, run for city council, run for a state rep. And, and we're gonna be there for you. We're gonna help you, we're gonna train you, we're gonna fund your campaigns. Uh, we wanna make it easy for folks to kind of step up really because the challenge with representation, right? Right now, 90% of people in public office are white. And the challenge there is 85% of all the democratic candidates for public office have also been white. And so we have a huge challenge of getting, you know, more people of color for our perspective, more black people to step up and run. And, and when that happens, we can begin to kind of shift some of these dynamics of power that are so outweighed. Now, I'm interested too in some of the learnings. Do you find any changes regionally? Is it easier to recruit candidates in the South or on the coast? Is it the same everywhere? Is it just like a different speech you have to give to help people believe that they can run? Like, what is it? What are the I don't know, what does that look like? And I'm interested too in, in age or gender. Like, do you mm -hmm. find that women uh, just need to be asked and they're ready to do it? Uh, younger men, is it easier to get? I don't know, like what's the what there? <laughs> it's funny because, uh, you know, there, there's this saying that a man will wake up, look at himself in the mirror and said, you know what, I'm running for something today. And that man that has no kind of experience and a woman <laughs> who's been active and involved in her community, who's been a leader of this and that, will have to be asked 10 times by people that she trusts to convince herself that she's ready to run. And so I'm hopeful and I'm grateful that we're starting to see more women, more black women run for office and realize that they are ready. This year we're breaking records by having 
the most number of Black women ever run for Congress. The collective pack alone has endorsed 104 Black women that are running on a local, state, and federal level. That is, that's a huge number. And so that's definitely something that um, has only increased since the historic election of 2018. But I'd also say this year, especially, and in fact, the collective has a new speaker, virtual speaker series that we do. Um, and we've been focusing on the South has something to say because we are seeing a number of black candidates running for office in the South for positions where you've, you've, you haven't had black folks represent statewide. I mean, there's, there's 365 state positions uh, in the country. So that's your governors, attorney generals, um, secretary of states. We currently have 18 black people in those positions. Um, and so to have, you know, folks like Mike Espy in Mississippi, who's running for Senate and Adrian Perkins, who's running for Senate in Louisiana. You have, as Quentin said, Jamie Harris in South Carolina, Marquita Bradshaw, who's running in Tennessee for Senate. You know, to have these folks that are running statewide, it is incredible. I mean, I think it's just showing that, especially in the South, there is this hunger for us to represent our communities in a way that is reflective of the changes that we need to quickly progress us forward. And the pace in which change has happened has not nearly been fast enough across the country, but definitely not within our Southern states and the Midwest really, but you know, <laughs> everywhere, let's just say America. Right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some racist people should be paying attention to that you think are not getting enough attention? You all support so many candidates, not just the ones that are on MSNBC. What are some that we should be paying attention to that we don't know? Ooh, um, I mean, I think we have some really important DA races around the country this year. And so I think about Cincinnati, um, Hamilton County. Uh, you have a candidate um, named Fannin Rucker, you know, running to be the, the you know first black DA for Cincinnati. I think on the congressional level, even you have some amazing black women who are running. I think about someone like Candace Valenzuela. Uh, running in Texas 24 to be the first ever Afro-Latina a member of Congress, doing great work. Desiree Thames running for Congress in the Dayton, Ohio area. Uh, many people might know the song, My Vote Will Count by the artist Yellow Pain. Well, that's her cousin. And Desiree, you know, she actually, um, you know, asked him to write a song about voting. And now it became like the most viral voting song of the cycle. Um, there are amazing uh, candidates running statewide as well. Um, in North Carolina, you have so many Black women running. We want to lift them up. Uh, Avon Lewis Holly running for Lieutenant Governor in uh, North Carolina. And then Sherry Beasley running for the Supreme Court in North Carolina as well. The Chief Justice. Um, that, Chief yeah. Justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, so, you know, there, there are a ton of candidates everywhere. You can go to our website, um, collectivepack.org, and check them out. But I think those are a few that we want to highlight because they're, you know, part of what we also have learned and what we do is we have to celebrate these narratives of candidates, not just running to be the first black person to do whatever just because, but like running to actually continue making substantive change um, in these positions. And that's like really important to point out, you know, people like Kim Fox and Kim Gardner had some, you know, tough primaries earlier this year, but they're also running um, on the ballot and could definitely continue to use um, our support. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are stories in, in every state, almost in every city of, again, these amazing candidates who are talented, who are smart, and just need a little bit more love and attention from our community. Help get them over that, that hump, right? It, again, it's amazing that we can tell the stories of the Jamie Harrisons, of the Stacey Abrams, um, but to your point, it's really important that we also think about the down-ballot candidates who most of the time have a bigger impact 
over our lives than just the folks at the national level. We just launched our Justice for All initiative, which is really working to put a spotlight on the Black candidates that are running for judicial positions. So much is talked about now in our country around uh, criminal justice reform, police reform, the justice system reform as a whole. And, you know, when we look and see that 95% of our prosecutors in this country are white, predominantly white men, you know, we, we see we have a problem. <laughs> we have a problem here. And so our Justice for All initiative is really working to both recruit and identify those Black candidates that are running for judicial positions, for DAs, prosecutors, for judges, for sheriffs even. We have a, a candidate, Greg Tony, who's running for Broward County Sheriff in Florida. Broward County, as you know, is a heavily Black county. And so it's important that we are putting a spotlight on these folks who are working to not just get in these positions, but to create reform within these positions because so many of them come from the communities. And, and that's really a, an important a- aspect of who it is that we're choosing to represent us and create new laws and policies and processes. What's your take on uh, Biden, Harris, Trump, Pence? Are you worried that uh, Black men will vote for Trump, as I've been hearing in the news? <laughs> like people are nervous that Black men really might not come through with the way people want. Are you, I don't know, what's your, what's your read yeah. as people who do this work every day around who is voting, how we change mm-hmm. not only the narrative, but reality? My magic number, I think Trump will get 15% of Black men. And that, in my opinion, is too high. But that onus is on the Democratic Party. It's on the presidential campaign that the Biden campaign is running. I think it's tough to expect Black men to do something when, one, like, have we asked them to support Biden Harris, number one? And two, if we did, like, did that happen in September, October, or did it happen, you know, in January or February, right? I think part of the question is the engagement here. I think what we uh, have been seeing is Black men feel like they're left out, like they haven't been talked to, communicated with, their issues haven't been brought to the forefront. And so I think it, it is kind of late to think that we can change those, those dynamics in that community. Um, But what we can do, right, is continue to turn out Black women. I think this is very much a space and a time where we are talking about loving and protecting our Black women. We know that Black women are the highest voting demographic in the country. They overperformed for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So I think the way to counter that isn't to, like, blame Black men or attack Black men. I think part of that is already baked to the numbers, Um, but we got to maximize Black women's turnout. And I think having a Black woman on the presidential ticket is one way to do that. Um, So I'm I'm excited about the chances to elect the first Black vice president in U.S. history. But I also think that there's a lot of work that has to be done, talking to, engaging, listening to, respecting, putting forth an agenda for Black men if Democrats hope to continue to see that support at 85 percent or, you know, plus moving forward. Yeah, and we're, we're really focused on the message of voting up the ballot. The majority of our legislative candidates that are running for, you know, state representative seats, state Senate seats are in battleground states. They're in North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, Georgia. Uh, we have over 25 folks in North Carolina alone that we've endorsed. And so they're speaking directly to the issues that are impacting the Black community. When you have candidates like that on the ticket, they are going to drive voter turnout. You know, definitely we are hoping that the Biden-Harris ticket will will win and we'll be able to turn out voters. But, you know, we're definitely working to make sure that these Black candidates 
who just on their own need the support because they are really trying to create progressive change to help the black community. You know, we're hoping that they can be successful as well to help drive the voter turnout that we know we need to see to help the top of the ticket. I want to ask you to explain, you keep saying that you endorse candidates or you support a candidate. What does that actually mean? Does that mean, it, is that always like a financial contribution plus social media shout outs? Is that strategy? Is that like, what comes with an endorsement from the collective pack? It's a work in progress. It has been, I would say, from, you know, when we first started to where we are now, which it doesn't even seem like it's only been four years since right. we've been doing the collective. But so one is we have a process in which people have to essentially apply for endorsement. They contact us. You can go to collectivepack.org. They have to complete a 40-question questionnaire, which gives us a sense of their policy agenda. You know, we don't support Democratic candidates or Republican candidates just because they are one or the other, just Black people, because we, we are looking for Black candidates to have a progressive agenda to help move the Black community forward. And so our 40 questions helps to give us a semblance of where they stand on policies. So as you can imagine, Deray, we've, we've had a few folks who you know, didn't do quite well in that questionnaire and we ain't holler at them no more. That's where we start. From there, our political team, which is led by Chris Scott, is able to talk with these candidates, talk with their campaigns. We look at their books. We find out how their fundraising has gone. You know, if you're running for Congress and the election is in November and by February of that year, you've only raised $5, this may not be the time for you to run because you need to be able to have you know, some momentum, some uh, campaign structure that is rolling that we can come in and support and, and hopefully help to skyrocket. And so our support, definitely we look to every candidate we support, we endorse, gets a check from us. And what makes the PAC structure so great is you can go to collectivepack.org, you look at our candidates and you say, you know what, I got $25 to give. I'm going to give $5 towards Jamie Harrison, $5 towards Candace Valenzuela, and I want the rest to go to the collective to distribute out to other candidates how they see fit. And so, you know, you can both give directly to the collective. You can give to individual candidates to support their campaigns. With that money, what we do is, besides the direct contributions, you know, we, we host, as I mentioned, our speaker series where we are featuring, especially our Black women that are running for Congress. We do the social media posts. We help them to connect with campaign staff if they're looking for uh, some folks to fill positions. You know, we help provide advisement on their campaigns, how things are going. If we're in a position to do help them with polling, we'll do some of that stuff. And we help with training. We also really work to make sure that especially the I say the Democratic establishment, because that's mainly who we deal with, understands the importance of supporting these candidates. I remember in 2018, Quentin and I had to go to D.C. to meet with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee because they had this exclusive list called red to blue on, you know, these are the seats that they think Democrats can flip from red to blue. And this is who needs your attention and support. And they didn't have any black folks on it. It was like, hold up. Actually, some of the people that are out raising their opponents, that are out polling their opponents are black candidates. Why aren't you supporting them? And through some, you know, very impassioned discussions and back and forth and maybe a couple of op-eds, you know, dropped. I don't know. You know, maybe a story or two on BuzzFeed. You know, we were able to help push for these black candidates to get their due respect. You know, we, we want to shine a spotlight. We want to also just make sure that folks like, you know, Yvonne um, Holly, who's who's running in North Carolina, isn't forgotten by the state party. If you're going to send out mailers, that feature the governor that's running and the secretary of state, you better put on a black woman that's running for lieutenant governor. This has been a story that has been all across the media. 
that she's not getting due support as the, the other uh, candidates that are running statewide that are white. So, you know, we, we try to do that advocacy stuff. That's not as I think put out there publicly, but but that's a, a big part of the work we do also behind the scenes. So elections coming, elections going to pass. Mm-hmm. I want to believe or, or I believe that there's probably uh, more work to be done even after election day. So what can people do and can people help you? Elections are year round, right? And so our job is to continue lifting up candidates um, who run in off years or even run in special elections. So for instance, the Senate seat in Georgia and Louisiana, um, those are actually primary elections in November. And so you will have a chance if you live in Georgia, Louisiana, actually go back to the polls in December or January to vote for your U.S. Senator. We're hoping that Raphael Warnock in Georgia or Adrian Perkins in Louisiana Um, you know, make those runoffs that we have the chance to elect Black senators from those states. But that will be in December and in January. And then next year, um, all the historic Black mayors we helped elect in 2017 are running for re-election. People like Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta, uh, Randall Woodfin in um, Birmingham. So many folks uh, who are making amazing change in their their cities have to run again next year. And so this is a a year-round process. So I would say a couple of things. Number one, Please follow us online. Uh, go to our you know, Facebook page or Twitter. We're at the Collective Pack on Facebook, at Collective Pack on, on Twitter and IG. Um, become a, a donor. You know, consider giving five or ten bucks a month uh, to help sustain this work because again, everyone's attention is on the politics right now. But in December and January, when we still have to do this work, we want to make sure that we have donors who are committed to it year-round. And then I would say third is consider running for office. Maybe you haven't thought about that as a possible way you can serve and lead. Um, But I think we can all look at who's in the White House currently and understand that uh, most of us could probably step up and be on school board or be on city council or, or, you know, be making our voices heard in public office. And so consider running for office. That's, again, a huge opportunity for us to create the change that we want to see. Right. If we want to change the laws, um, we have to change the lawmakers. And who better to do that? And folks listening to this right now. Okay, well, great to have y'all here. Hopefully we knock this out in November so that we can all just at least, we just got to survive this man, Lord. (laughs) And then go on to do uh, the next work. I appreciate the work that you all do across the country, not just locating in the big cities because we know that the big cities get a lot of love. And then Mm -hmm. as you know, that there are all these incredible races that people should be paying attention to, but for whatever reason not. So it is collectiveback.org. We consider you uh, both a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Awesome. Thanks Thank so you. Much. Same here. Appreciate you. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform. It's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust made-in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. 
and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Antoine Phillips, I know first from Bowdoin College, he's running to be a city director in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, Antoine's a practicing attorney who has significant experience in community, working to make sure that people have all the resources and supports they need to be successful and to live strong lives. He was a president of the Public Education Foundation of Little Rock. He was a president of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Central Arkansas's Board of Directors. He's been a part of the Little Rock Area Public Education Stakeholders Group and so much more. I learned a lot from talking to him. Let's support Antoine. Little Rock, let's go. Antoine, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Uh, DeRay, thank you for having me. Happy to be a part of the show. As they say, long-time listener, first-time caller. Isn't that how they do it? (laughs) That is how they do it. Now, I've known you for a long time at this point, uh, from Bowdoin to now. I was excited to see that you were running for office. Can you talk about what are you running for, why Little Rock, why this position, and why now? So, Antoine Phillips, I'm a candidate for Little Rock City Board of Directors. And City Board of Directors is our version of City Council, exact same thing. It's an at-large position to raise, so that means it's a citywide election. So everyone in the city of Little Rock will get to cast a ballot for Antoine Phillips. I'm running because I grew up here, going out to Bowdoin, having the experiences we had at Bowdoin. DeRay really opens your eyes to how things could be better where you're from. And I'm an optimistic person. I'm a person who believes in better. Uh, that's the campaign theme, and that's my life theme. If you believe in something, DeRay, you work hard to make it happen. A hurdle may come in the way. There may be a speed bump. But when you truly believe in anything in life, you keep working until you accomplish it. And I think Little Rock can be better than what it is today. So I'm going to keep working until that is accomplished. And to take on that work, I decided to run for this at-large position. What would you do on the council or the board of directors? Like, what can you do on that on that body that you can't do right now as a citizen in Little Rock? We can do so much as citizens. And I don't want to discount anyone's work that's not in public office because we can effectuate change just by casting the ballot, making the phone call, showing up at the meeting, showing up at the protest. All those things affect change in our community. Uh, but from a city board standpoint, uh, there's a different type of change that I can effectuate, which is how we spend our dollars as a city board or, you know, making sure that certain parts of our community receive the same attention and infrastructure development that other parts of our community have seen. You can't really push that envelope unless you have the vote. And as a city board member, I will cast a vote to make those type of decisions to make sure that the inequity that's happened in Little Rock and different parts of town no longer happens. Got it. What have you learned while you have been a candidate? I think about the process of running for office as one of those transformative things that somebody can do, just the process alone. How has that been? I've worked on a lot of campaigns, DeRay. This is my first time running, so my first time with my name on the ballot. I learned there's a lot of decisions to be made in the campaign that I wasn't making when I worked on campaigns. No matter how involved I was, I was only involved in a certain part. When you're the candidate, you have to make every decision. You know, simple stuff to the font of the campaign logo to very serious stuff as opposed to, like, what positions is important to our people and and what positions are we going to promote on our campaign platform. But what I learned mostly 
is that, you know, talking to people throughout the city of Little Rock, we all kind of want the same thing, but we just hadn't had the voice to articulate how even though you may grow up differently, your economic standing may be different, there's a commonality in our city. And as a person who grew up here on the lower economic side of the ladder, so to speak, I went to six different elementary schools. That wasn't because the schools were bad. It was because we moved lease to lease. When the lease was up, we went to a different apartment complex. Now I'm a partner at a law firm in the state of Arkansas. So I've seen Little Rock through a lot of different lenses. And I've learned through talking to people that we kind of want the same thing, but it hadn't been a person to articulate that to one another. And I think because of my experiences, I am that person. Now, give us a sense of what are the issues in Little Rock. Obviously, uh, you know, we all know the Little Rock Nine, which I'm sure people in Little Rock are tired of hearing people talk about. Maybe, I don't know. It's like, that is like why a lot of people know Little Rock. Yeah. Uh, But there must be other issues besides education. I'm sure education is probably still an issue. What are the issues that Little Rock voters care about? We just celebrated the 63rd anniversary of the Little Rock Nine. So that's a big part of our history, and it doesn't get old because it's part of who we are as a city. There are educational issues. Five years ago, our state board of education decided to take over the Little Rock School District from the locally elected school board. So for five years, we hadn't had a school board, and there hasn't been a relationship between the city of Little Rock and local education for a very long time. So that's a very important issue, and I plan to bring more of a partnership between city government and school government to improve the schools for everyone in our city. Like all over the country, we are navigating what new policing looks like. We have adopted many of the eight can't wait policies. There's still a couple that we need to work on that I'm going to work on. Uh, but ultimately, in Little Rock, there's a hard divide in our city through an Interstate 630. If you live north of 630, you're probably upper middle class and white. And if you live south of 630, you're probably lower middle class and black or brown. That divide has permeated a lot of parts of our life. North of 630 looks a lot better and a lot different than south of 630. So that's the issue that needs to be addressed, and the city board has a role to play in that, and that's part of the reason why I'm running. In my notes, it said that you were formerly the president of the Public Education Foundation of Little Rock and the president of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Central Arkansas. What did you learn in those roles? Like, How did that help inform your understanding of the systemic issues in the city? Uh, I'm married, but I don't have children. And both of those roles are about the kids in the city of Little Rock. One reason why I came back home after graduating from Bowdoin is because I realized how fortunate I was to have certain opportunities where someone believed in me and opened the door while I ended up at a school like Bowdoin and how that changes how you look at the world when you're there for four years and realizing that those same opportunities weren't afforded to everyone in my city. So you come back and I get involved with Big Brothers Big Sisters because I understand that a lot of that is just opportunity and relationships and mentoring. So Big Brothers Big Sisters is a way to do that. And there are so many kids in our city who just need the chance. I mean, I'm no different. I'm not smarter than anyone else. I just had a chance. And we need to give our kids a chance. And the Public Education Foundation service on that board has got me acutely aware of the educational issues in our city, as I talked about with the takeover of the Little Rock School District and some of the inequities on how we treat certain schools over other schools. I mean, obviously you talk about property tax funding, but also the perception that our city has over certain schools. I went to one of the quote-unquote bad schools, McClellan, which is a predominantly black high school, 
And I've learned that people look at you differently when you say you went to McClellan. You couldn't went to McClellan because you're a lawyer at a law firm. So those kind of perception things I really learned uh, working on the Little Rock Public Education Foundation Board, and that helped you inform your opinion on how to improve and make our city better. Now, what about businesses in Little Rock? How's the, what's the business community? What's your message to them? Uh, or is there a message to them right now as you're running? It is a message to them, and that's why I say I think I'm uniquely qualified because I'm an attorney. And part of my practice, DeRay, is representing businesses, small or large, before the Little Rock City Board. Now, I'm not going to be able to do that once I win because obviously there's a conflict of interest, but I represented a number of the businesses around town. And a lot of things that I'm talking about, you can't do without raising revenue. And I've learned in representing those businesses that it's hard to do business in Little Rock. It's hard for you to get started or build your business because of archaic zoning laws that take you six months to change a zoning from a residential to commercial or from commercial warehouse district to a commercial industrial district. Things like that shouldn't slow down the economic progress of our city, and it has. I understand that because I'm a lawyer and I represented businesses in doing that. These things are circular and intertwined, as you know. And I tell the business community, we're going to make it easier for you to do business in Little Rock, uh, which ultimately helps raise the revenue of our city to address some of the issues that I talked about earlier that needs to be addressed. And that's a win for everyone. Now, how's it looking for you on Election Day? Is there, is there any polling? Is there like, how is it campaigning given that there's COVID? I don't know. Tell us the status of the race. There are seven people in my race. I have six opponents. The Little Rock City Board of Directors race is a plurality race. So that means whoever gets the most votes on November 3rd wins this thing. There will not be a runoff. I feel like I've done well in the city. I have ties in the city. I was born and built here. We've been able to accomplish everything we wanted to do from a financial standpoint in campaigning through the city, whether it's digital, radio, print, billboard, yard signs, endorsements. I mean, we've crossed all those boxes. Uh, we've raised more money in this race than any of our opponents. I feel good about that. But I do know that money doesn't vote. People vote. So you still got to get out here to the extent you can in light of COVID and reach people where they are and make sure they know to press the Antoine Phillips button. Make sure they know that I believe in the Bell of Little Rock, and I know that they do too, and that they join us in making that happen. If you win the election, how will that matter in terms of the composition of the board of directors? I will be the youngest person on the city board. I'm 36 years old, and coincidentally, uh, the average age of a Little Rock citizen is 36 years old. Right now, our city board is a much older city board. That will change the dynamic and the perspective to our city on how we enact policies when you have someone who's, quote-unquote, in the millennial generation being the only person on the city board. Now, granted, our mayor is also 36 years old, but... Of the city board members, the people who actually cast the vote, I think the youngest person may be in the mid-50s. Uh, and also from a racial standpoint, I believe that the 2020 census will show that Little Rock is a majority-minority city. There's more black and brown people in Little Rock than I believe there are white people. And despite that, the current composition of the city board, there are 10 members on the city board. Seven of those members are white. Three are black. Uh, we have three at-large members on the city board. All three of those members are white. And since we went to this form of government back in 1992, no black person has been elected at large. So with my election, I would be the None? first None? Really. Little Rock's political history is way more complicated than it should be, but this goes back to the Central High deal. Central High happened in 57. And in 1956, Little Rock had a strong mayor form of government. 
But because of the uprising of unions, because of the uprising of desegregation, the city of Little Rock decided to change our form of government to a city manager form of government, making the mayor pretty much a ribbon cutter and part-time and ceremonial and giving all administrative power to the city manager who was an unelected person. They wanted to take the politics out of city government because what was about to happen with desegregation. They did that the year before integration. So you take that history, and it's been complicated since then, uh, but in 92, we changed to our current form of government with seven ward board members and three at-large board members. Since 92, none of the at-large board members have been black. So with my victory on November 3rd, I will be the first black person since the change in government as an at-large member. That's wild. It is wild. And it's a little bit complicated. It's not like I'm the first at-large black person because before 92, all the board members were at-large. And then in 92, there was another uprising about how we are running our city, so they decided to change it. So in 28 years, no black person has been able to win a citywide race as an at-large director. And I will be the first since that time. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us today on Pod City People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. I appreciate it. Been a long-time listener, and then maybe I'll be a second-time caller. Yeah, and we'll call you after, after you win. We'll have you back. That sounds like a plan. I can't wait. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elsie. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.